Greetings, dear listener. Your subterranean challenger vessel has burrowed to the succulent inner layers of mumbling planet. And why is it that way? What secrets of Azathoth heaven wait at the mouth of Guinea Pig Cave? And what does that have to do with collaborative writing, complexity, and interdisciplinarity? Mumbling Planet is brought to you by the Atlanta Surrealist Group, and I'm your host, James Robert Foster. This week on Mumbling Planet, I've weaved together several lines of thought, some of my own thoughts and the thoughts of my friends, and some thoughts of others, woven together by way of semantic collage, as it were. The idea being, perhaps, a demonstration of the self-organization of meaning out of juxtapositions and so-called noisy channels. Interviews with passers-by and little five points, discussions and readings of collaborative writings by Stephen and Hazel Klein, a long reading of a text by William Paulson about the relationship between literature, complexity, and interdisciplinarity that I read out loud a few months ago on the boat my parents live on, and readings of texts by Auseberg, Paul Eluard, H.P. Lovecraft, Nemaz, and Stephen Klein, chopped up and woven together to create something new. So strap in and get ready for the ride. In a jalopy made of disparate jet engines, drills, car parts, organs, and word forms, traveling somewhere roughly perpendicular to the speed of thought here on Mumbling Planet. Any thoughts on why it's that way? It's that way because everything is just so fucked up. Yeah, why is it that way? Any idea? Have you ever thought about why it's that way? I think that's just the way it is. It could be, or it could be some other way. I mean, it is that way, but sometimes it's not that way. And when it's not that way, why isn't it? Good, good points, good points. That's what, we, that's what the mainstream media doesn't want you to think about. Yeah. <laughs> open your mind and you'll find the answer. And what, have you, have you opened your mind and found the answer yourself? I haven't found the answer, I've been trying to. Hey, what, what, what have you found so far? Uh, found that life is not something to be taken serious and every day is precious. Stephen and I do some collaborative writing. No, that's nice. In a, a Google document together. We said we were going to do this, all three so of us. we have a shared Google document. That's a, well, more and than three. We wanted to do it with the whole we'll group. We'll both have it open at the same time. Yeah. We'll both be typing, um, usually alternately. So it was just kind of helpful because sometimes when you're doing automatic writing, we're talking like this. You kind of just hit a little bit of a wall. Like space here? But when you're doing it with somebody else and you kind of come to that natural sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of place 
where you've kind of run out. Run out, run out, run out. The other person then takes over. Right, exactly. So, it ends up, it ends up, it ends up, it ends up, it ends up. You know, you know, being a situation where each participant is inspiring the other. Hmm. It takes it in different directions. It kind of, kind of, kind of. Sometimes your brains wants to to, to keep going down the same path, and then 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 and they kind of kind of kind of kind of kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of head you off the path and, and take it a, a totally different direction, and then you have to kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of pick up from that. And yeah, which is one of the great benefits of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, we certainly have these, like, well-worn paths. And, um... And you end up going places that... With these collaborative writings that neither person would would have gone alone. Port Royal, South Carolina, and I'm about to read um, an essay from a book called Chaos and Order. Um, an essay by William Paulson. I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, but I figured I might as well read it out loud um, so I could listen later. Um, anyway, this is the second chapter, and it's called Literature, Complexity, Interdisciplinarity by William Paulson. And you'll forgive me if I occasionally drink my coffee and maybe pause on some things to think occasionally. Quote, and one can wisely give to literature the task of revealing to us a part of man and of the world where science does not reach. Don't tell the scientists that. That's Jean Paulhan from Le Fleur de Taros à la Terreur de la Lettre. Forgive my French. The second quote that introduces the chapter is, we might say that in creative art, man must express himself, his total self, as a cybernetic model, and that quotes by Gregory Bateson, conscious purpose versus nature. Hopefully you'll forgive the expression man and mankind and all that kind of business. Sibylline apology of rhetoric. Before moving on, I just wanted to explain a little bit about what Sibylline meant. Um, it's a reference to the Sibylline oracles, which are a collection of oracular utterances uh, written in Greek hexameters and ascribed to the Sibyls, who were prophetesses who uttered divine revelations in a frenzied state. Um, according to the Wikipedia article here, it says 14 books and 8 fragments of Sibylline oracles survive. Um, Etc. Etc. So, it's um, in general the word Sibylline. Um, here, according to Google definitions, it says relating to or characteristic of a Sibyl, or a prophetic or mysterious thing. Jean Paulhan, reviewing the paradoxes turned up by his implacable probing of extreme demands for purity in language and thought, names the method that has failed to seize either critical terror or rhetorical flowers. It is the method of detectives, philosophers, mechanics, and physicists. The method of Descartes. Paul Hahn quotes its rules from the autobiographical discourse on method, 
in which Descartes rejected the learning provided by text and tradition and set forth principles for obtaining certain knowledge by reducing problems to simple, self-evident components and linking these in a linear chain of reasoning. What the Cartesian rules collectively imply, notes Paulon, is, quote, that our thought is in no case subjected to or confused with its objects, but independent, end quote. The dualism of Cartesian metaphysics is of a piece with an epistemology that separates mind from its objects. Paulhan argues that in confronting the commonplaces of rhetoric where thought and language fuse, neither the mind's separation from its objects nor the reduction to simplicity are possible. Do you want to read one? Yeah. Okay, here. Thinking about the language of thought, thought is enmeshed in the web of its own complexity. So this one's actually our first one. And it's, we, uh, we titled it All Clockwork. The experience of literature, like the theories of modern physics, suggests Paul Hahn, that reason itself must change, give up its Cartesian vantage point and certitudes. The universe, her own lost lover, may be seen as machine, as a spiraling Victorian machine of gold gear, all clockwork like a song, who descends again this dream. With the discourse on method, Descartes joined his older contemporary Bacon as a founder of the kind of distinction between ways of knowing that now resides in the contrasts between the literary and scientific disciplines. The study of literature often seems a residue of the sort of education that these institutors of modern science were so quick to reject. Anybody have any thoughts on uh, why it's that way? Well, you know, it. Why is it that way? Angelic beings formulated only as a song of pure smell drift inward, licking like a perfumed song, a scented song that melts into black glass, darker than vacuum and more crystalline than volcanic orangutans. Yet, if today there can be a study of literature and science, if such a study can be theorized or practiced, this can only be because literature has a particular cultural status that relates it to science in particular ways. There must be something in literature and in science that makes talking about literature and science possible. In the pages that follow, I will argue that what most significantly unites literature and science in our age of noise and chaos is the notion of complexity and its implications for interdisciplinary understanding. The seabird honks slowly 
irreversibly, a world into myth, the spider web lacework left behind, but all this resembles only slightly the forlorn face of desire in her aging pack animal, the horned helical divisor of all manners of play. Quote, the scientific revolution of the past 50 years, writes Anthony Wilden, had its origins in a revolt against simplicity, unquote. Modern science, at its beginnings, could get along well with the epistemological side of Cartesian dualism. With an absolute separation between the physical world to be known and the mind does the knowing. The perspective of the scientific observer, uncontaminated by its objects, is comparable to that of a mind admitting only clear and distinct ideas. Patterns of a great mathematical sigh leap forward and reveal themselves to have been all along a simple jest to amuse the one remembered in Desire's lair. Any thoughts on why it's that way? Neither do I. <laughs> the Newtonian paradigm, by suggesting that wide ranges of phenomena could at least in theory be understood to be caused by the deterministic motion of bodies, held out the hope that certainty could be attained by the reduction of the complex to the simple. Speak. Reverse. This the pelican calls to me to be unafraid. The most extreme conceptual figure of this project was the demon imagined by Pierre Simon Laplace. Pierre Simon, Simon Laplace, sorry. Capable of deriving all past and future events from complete knowledge of the position, mass, and velocity of all the fundamental particles of the universe, this demon, omniscient and unconnected to the dynamic system it observes, was an idealization of the scientific observer attempting to apply the paradigm of Newtonian mechanics. This last day is sweet. A multitude, an ancient epic, indwelling, therein may, inside those glittering gears, break bread with shadows. Claims of the universality for the Newtonian paradigm were shattered early in the 19th century by Fourier's formulation of a law for the propagation of heat that was independent of and irreducible to the mechanical laws of motion. But ever, mm. ever while the lonely lives we lead sit weeping by her mirror, can Victrola spit out its, its slugs of light? 20th century discoveries from relativity to quantum mechanics to dissipative structures have put an end to at least the more metaphysical claims of objectivity for the scientific observer. In the sky above, what? cries the clouds. What is this fracture, this suture called time? No less important, science has changed in objects as well as theoretical models. Fields from biology to psychology to anthropology have joined the ranks of the sciences since the end of the Newtonian model's hegemony. We speak of the social sciences or the human sciences 
and can no longer fix a boundary between these and what we still distinguish as the natural sciences. Where in the brain does neurophysiology stop and psychology begin? For elsewhere, called form, around us, a tower sheds its skin. Inside us, a tower devours and delights. And this hour is born as if it were the first hour and the last hour, penetrating deep the ear of the other. Any thoughts on why it is that way? Justice. That's a good idea. I think that I think that's probably right. Since this question has no clear answer, it becomes impossible to identify what has long been called mind with the subject rather than the object of science. Again and again, but this time the gears are well worn. This time our ghosts dance. And it becomes reasonable, though it is by no means the only intellectual option available, to suppose that mind is a name for a particular kind of natural system, entirely realized in physical phenomena no different ontologically from other physical phenomena that have long been the object of science. Yet, the approach to the phenomenon of mind poses seemingly unprecedented problems of inherent complexity because the mediation between psychochemical components and the mental effects that emerge from them must involve variety and diversity comparable to the resources of the mind that seeks to know the phenomenon. Would, um, I was thinking, maybe you could read it now, the same one. And this is me talking. Here's where we get into recursion, right? <laughs> the universe, her own lost lover, may be seen as machine, as a spiraling Victorian machine of gold gear, all clockwork like a song, who descends again this dream. The very possibility of a science of mind depends to a large extent on the prior development of scientific approaches to complexity. Prior to, quote, revolution against simplicity, Embodied in information theory and cybernetics, science dealt above all with systems of matter and energy, in general, recognizing no distinct role for information. Angelic beings formulated only as a song of pure smell drift inward, licking like a perfumed song. As Wilden has noted, information becomes distinct and abstracted from matter energy in systems, organic, social, cultural, of increasing complexity. A scented song that melts into black glass, darker than vacuum and more crystalline, volcanic orangutans. Scientific explanations of these generally adaptive or goal-seeking systems cannot be obtained by reduction to components describable in terms of matter energy, but instead must take into account the emergent function of information at the level of the whole. The seabirds honk slowly, irreversibly, a world into myth. Classical causal explanation must be supplemented by what Bateson called cybernetic explanation. The spiderweb lacework left behind by all this resembles only slightly the forlorn face of desire in her aging pack animal, the horned helical divisor of all manners of play. 
Mathematical information theory, one of the foundations of the cybernetic approach, was developed to resolve problems in the transmission of signals. It begins by quantifying information. The information of a message can be measured as the number of binary bits required to encode it. Any thoughts on why it's that way? Do you uh, have any idea why it is the way it is? Why what is the way it is? You know, things. I don't know. Corporate oh, greed? Say again? Corporate greed? Corporate greed. There it is. Patterns of a great mathematical sigh leap forward and reveal themselves to have been all along a simple jest to amuse the one remembered in desire's lair. Information is thus a measure of a quantity of possibilities out of which a single actual message is selected. It is, in other words, a measure of the uncertainty of a receiver that will be resolved by the reception of a given message. Speak. Reverse. This the pelican calls to me to be unafraid. This last day is sweet, a multitude, an ancient epoch, indwelling therein may, inside those glittering gears, break bread with shadows. It can also be used as a measure of the organizational variety of a system or text. But ever, ever, while the lonely lives we lead sits weeping by her mirror, can the Victrola spit out its slugs of light. Almost from the beginnings of information theory as a discipline, researchers began considering the possibility of using information as a parameter for measuring <clears throat> the organizational complexity or adaptive variety of systems that were more than simple communicative messages, most notably biological systems. More important than measurement, however, was the role of information as a concept for understanding biological organization, the preservation and development of beings characterized by ordered complexity and a universe governed by the second law of thermodynamics. In the sky above, what? cries the clouds. What is this fracture, this suture, to call time? Or elsewhere called form? Around us, a tower sheds its skin. Inside us, a tower devours and delights. Some early theorists of information in biology, the physicist Schrodinger in particular, assumed that the large quantities of information possessed by organisms must come from their environment. But if organisms are autonomous, how can what is outside them be information for them? How can it reliably be anything but perturbation or noise? And this hour is born as if it were the first hour and the last hour, penetrating deep the ear of the other, again and again, but this time the gears are well worn. This time our ghosts dance. The concept of self-organization appeared around 1960. In part, as an attempt to overcome this difficulty. Heinz von Forster and later Henry Alton developed the following line of thinking. Organisms find not only information, but also noise on their menu. And they make information 
from noise. Out of the perturbations that threaten to destabilize organisms, to modify their structure and possibly undo their organization, they produce new and more complex forms of organization. They can do so, Alton argues, because they are multi-level systems. Any thoughts on why it's that way? I'm sorry? Just wondering if you had any thoughts on why it is that way. Why is it that way? Um, right. Why is it this way when it could be otherwise? Uh, you mean the world or America? What? You, you tell me. Um, why is it that way? Hmm. I have to think on that one. Um, I guess because uh, the world is ran by money. And I guess um, since... Um, I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer that. Uh, why is it that way? Good question. That's I'm great. Back around. All right, thank you for your thoughts. <laughs> All right, man, sorry about that. <laughs> A poem by Nemoz. Self-organization from noise, which I will describe here following Altlund's formalization, provides a framework for understanding how organized variety, information, even meaning, can arise from interaction with disorder. The intersecting lines of love demand the dreams of days as sacrifice to ancient tongue. Suppose that in a system the totality of information contained in subsystem A is to be sent to subsystem B. Speak, then, candid. Speak so fair that the night will come unknown into the kingdom of the air. If the transmission takes place without noise, B gets a copy of A and now has the same information as A. But if there is noise in the channel, the information received at B is diminished by a function known as the ambiguity of the message. The quantity of information coming from the channel that is independent of the information that entered the channel. And speak so soft of days, begun and ended with a different sun. And speak so there may be a darkness in the core of being that breaks and births a sundering. So from the viewpoint of B, defined as a pure and simple receiver of the message from A, information has been lost. But consider now the point of view of an observer of the combined subsystems A and B, and the channel. Such an observer might be a scientist studying the system, but it might also be a higher level within the system itself, a subsystem related to A, therefore B, as B was to A. It's the A arrow, it's the, it's the, um, the A arrow B, like um, logical operators. I'm gonna get better about formal logic. Now let the thunder ring across the battle scar of sky, and let the wonder of the thing wake the dawn from slumber deep, and chase the feathered night from new built nest spring. Any thoughts on why it's that way? Are we talking the world, people, or normality? You, you tell me. Well, normality doesn't exist anymore just simply because no one is normal and we can't even define normal. The world is all completely going to hell, but we're trying to fix it. And 
don't genuinely suck anymore, so we're kind of getting to that even keel. People don't suck anymore. People are starting to suck less. People They're are starting learning. to suck less. Well, there's a lot more people fighting for like women's rights and gay rights and stuff like that than there used to be. Yeah. So while the world is still shit, there are some good people coming out and taking a stand against it. So the world is less the way it was now than the way it is now. Basically, yeah, we're moving on from that 1950s mentality where it's, oh, the, the man has to go out and do everything. The woman needs to stay home where you have more women that are becoming independent and don't need the help that everyone thinks that we need. We are very strong on our own. We're very strong in groups of everything. And it's we're coming to a point now that hopefully we in the United States can reach an enlightened period where... Everyone can just stop hating people for no reason. And that's what we need to get to. We need to get to a world where you can walk down the street and feel okay. Not walk down the street and go, okay, yeah, I just walked into this part of the neighborhood. And I don't know what's going to happen. Instead, you can walk into a neighborhood, say hi to someone, and have a pleasant conversation. Right on. Thanks for your um, thoughts. No problem. You have a great night. Anyway, what is the quantity of information emitted by... Parenthesis A arrow B close parenthesis. <laughs> it's the information received by B plus the ambiguity. Because the message from A to B has been altered. B has not just a copy of A, but contains information independent of A. Alton calls the two effects of ambiguity destructive ambiguity. B's copy of A is a poor one. And autonomy ambiguity. B is now something other than a copy of A. The system, A arrow B, contains potentially more information if B is an imperfect copy of A than if it's a perfect copy. The partial destruction of a transmitted message within one level of a hierarchy leads to increased variety in the message that this level in turn transmits to another part of the system. Azathoth by H.P. Lovecraft. Of course, the creation of variety is only a necessary, not a sufficient condition for the creation of meaning. Variety that was noise in one context can, but does not necessarily, become information in a new or reorganized context. As Otlan has recently written, quote, permitting chance to acquire a meaning a posteriori, and in a context of observation, that is ultimately how we can describe what self-organization is. I am going to read that again, because I think it's important. As Alton has recently written, quote, Permitting chance to acquire a meaning a posteriori, a posteriori, and in a given context of observation, is ultimately how we can describe what self-organization is. I will read it one last time, a third time. Permitting chance to acquire a meaning a posteriori, and in a given context of observation, that 
is ultimately how we can describe what self-organization is. And that's from a book by Alton um, Atlan. Uh, when age uh, from fell upon the world, and wonder went out of the minds of men. When gray cities reared to smoky skies, tall towers grim and ugly, in whose shadow none might dream of the sun or of spring's flowering meads. When learning stripped earth of her mantle of beauty, and poets sang no more save of twisted phantoms seen with bleared and inward-looking eyes. When these things had come to pass, and childish hopes had gone away forever, there was a man who traveled out of life on a quest into the spaces whither the world's dreams had fled. Any thoughts on why it's that way? Did you have any thoughts on why it's that way? Because it was meant for me to make it this way, and I made I put my album on a wristband, so it was meant for me to do that. You put your album on a wristband? USB instead of CD. I go by Allure. Allure? Allure music, huh? Yeah. All right. Album on a wristband. The process of self-organization from noise provides a suggestive model for the understanding of literary signification. A model that accounts for meaning by accepting, rather than resisting, the rhetorical dimensions of language. Of course, this kind of application of a scientific model to literary text will succeed only if there are features of both model and object that will make the former pertinent to the latter. In an apparent paradox, the current literature science dialogue, to which my argument belongs, is made possible by the very properties of literature that long made it seem the antithesis of a scientific project. A scientific object, rather. <laughs> of the name and abode of this man, but little is written. For they were of the waking world only. Yet it is said that both were obscure. It is enough to know that he dwelt in a city of high walls where sterile twilight reigned, and that he toiled all day among shadow and turmoil, coming home at evening to a room whose one window opened not on the fields and groves, but on a dim court where other windows stared in full, in dull despair. The modern sense of the word literature was born in a movement of dissension from Cartesian Newtonian reductionism. In the Encyclopédie d'Alembert's Discours Preliminaire surveys the state of different branches of knowledge and cultural activity in the light of the seemingly definitive triumph of Newtonian science and concludes that the place of imaginative creation has been inevitably reduced. But his collaborator, Diderot, had other ideas, thereby showing that what we call complexity, which is inextricably bound up with our modern notion of literature, was already serving as a countermodel to physical reductionism. From that casement, one might see only walls and windows, except sometimes when one leaned far out 
and peered aloft at the small stars that passed. And because mere walls and windows must soon drive to madness a man whose dreams, who dreams and reads much, the dweller in that room used night after night to lean out and peer aloft to glimpse some fragment of things beyond the waking world and the grayness of tall cities. Diderot's speculations about the nature of the aesthetic objects stand at the critical point in the history of those ideas. And the discourses that even today fix the place of literature and thus the conditions of possibility of the study of literature and science. After years, he began to call the slow sailing stars by name and to follow them in fancy when they glided regretfully out of sight till at length his vision opened to many secret vistas whose existence no common eye suspects. Writing on, quote, the beautiful in the Encyclopédie, the great 18th century dissenter from the ideal of simplicity suggested that the source of aesthetic pleasure was to be found in objects and perceptions quite untouched by the explanatory powers of the Newtonian worldview. Beauty, he argued, depends on the idea and perception of relations. This was not in itself an original position, but Diderot further argued that the perception of relations is a fundamental human experience because we live in a culture of machines and devices, of made things. Please. Because when we went to school, they gave us a whole bunch of vocabulary words, man, that we never knew before we went there. Right on, words, 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 words. Yeah, bro, and I feel like, man, we gotta, we gotta stay away from the labels, man. It's all propaganda. You know what I'm saying? We got to stay away from the labels, come together in love, man. Because love is what's going to bring everybody together, not labels. You know what I'm saying? Right on. And I, I feel like love is law, man. And once we can uh, first love ourselves, man, you know what I'm saying? Without gravita gravitating towards boxes, which I like to call them labels, because it's like individual boxes with labels on them. And I feel like, like Jesus said, bro, we was made in his image. He said he was all things. So that go for us, man. While we're going to just gravitate towards one thing, we all love. Thank you for your thoughts. I appreciate that. And one night, a mighty gulf was bridged, and the dream-haunted skies swirled down the rolling larger's window to merge with the close air of his room and make him a part of the fabulous wonder. Oh, I'm... I'm reading my book out loud and recording myself so that I can listen to it later again. <laughs> is that is that okay? You can listen if you want. I don't know if you'll enjoy. Okay. I might I might come down there and swipe another cup here in a minute. There came to that room wild streams of violet, midnight, glittering with dust of gold. We are born with needs which oblige us to have recourse to different expedients. Let's say that again. We are born with needs which oblige us to have recourse to different expedients. Most of these expedients are tools, machines, or some other invention of this kind. But every machine supposes combination, arrangement of parts, tending toward the same goal, etc. Here then are ideas of order, arrangement, symmetry, 
mechanism, proportion, unity. All these ideas come from the senses and are artificial. Vortices of dust and fire swirling out of the ultimate spaces and heavy with perfumes for beyond, from beyond the worlds. And we have passed from the notion of a multitude of artificial and natural beings arranged, proportioned, combined, and made symmetrical to the positive and abstract notion of order, arrangement, proportion, comparison, relations, symmetry, and to the negative notions of disproportion, disorder, and chaos. Opiate oceans poured there, litten by suns the eye may never behold, and having in their whirlpools strange dolphins and sea nymphs of unrememberable deeps. Only secondarily do we find these same characteristics in natural beings. They originate with artificial utilitarian objects. Noiseless infinity eddied around the dreamer and wafted him away without even touching the body that leaned stiffly from the lonely window. Writing in the 1780s, Carl Philippe Moritz gave the notion that beauty consists in the harmony of a work's parts, a romantic turn, by associating it with the idea that the work of art is a totality that constitutes its own finality. The work is thus, like nature, a created being. And for days not counted in men's calendars, the tides of far spheres bore him gently to join the dreams for which he longed, the dreams that men have lost. Omarit's internal organization appears when it's recognized that there's no external finality. And in the course of many cycles, they tenderly left him sleeping on a green sunrise shore, a green shore fragrant with lotus blossoms and starred by red camelotas. Any thoughts on why it's that way? Do you have any thoughts on why it's that way? I mean, you know, it's just the way of the world. It's always the way. <laughs> Do you know why it's that way? Uh, I assume it's because uh, the green eventually melted into the yellow and now everything's red. That just, that's deep, my man. <laughs> you want to you want to talk a little bit about your thing? I can put it on the thing? Yes, for sure. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, so. let you, I'll let you do the talking. All right, no doubt. So, yes, this is Jeremiah here with World Help. It is we actually a global nonprofit advocating for child's, non, uh, child's rights, and we make sure the kids have access to the basics, right? So right now there's actually 400 million kids suffering from extreme poverty, right? They don't have food, they don't have water, they don't have shelter, they don't have clothing. So, you know, enough for us to combat this. We provide child sponsorships through our child sponsorship program so people can sponsor a child, make sure they have access to those things. Food, water, shelter, clothing, healthcare, and education opportunities so we can actually break them out of that generational cycle of poverty. You know, like less of giving them a fish, more teaching them a fish. But for more information about child sponsorships that we provide, as well as all of our other projects, you can find that information on our website at worldhelp.net. And we're on all social media as well, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all access through our website. Once again, worldhelp.net. I appreciate it. Hey man, appreciate you, James. <laughs> Keep up the good work, Bob. With this kind of change in the notions of finality and imitation, the organism superseded the machine as a conceptual model of organization and complexity, replaced simplicity as a formal ideal. I'm, I'm gonna read this whole paragraph again because I need to understand it. Writing in the 1780s, Carl Philippe Moritz gave the notion that beauty consists in the harmony of a work's parts, a romantic turn, 
by associating it with the idea that the work of art is a totality that constitutes its own finality. The work is thus, like nature, a created being. For Moritz, internal organization appears when it is recognized that there is no external finality. With this kind of change in the notions of finality and imitation, the organism superseded the machine as a conceptual model of organization, and complexity replaced simplicity as a formal ideal. Schelling articulates this new organicism in the introduction to his philosophy of art. Quote, if it interests us to investigate as far as possible the structure, the internal dispositions, the relations and intricacies of a plant or of an organic being in general, how much more should we be tempted to know these same intricacies and relations in that plant considerably more organized and intertwined with itself that is called the work of art? A poem by Asa Berg called In the Guinea Pig Darkness. The interest in the complexity of harmonies and relations is thus one with the notion of the totality and autonomy of the work of art. I'll say that again. The interest in the complexity of harmonies and relations is thus one with the notion of the totality and autonomy of the work of art. There lay the guinea pigs. There lay the guinea pigs and they waited with blood around their mouths like my sister. Artistic autonomy implies that the authentic work of art participates in a dialectic of formal innovation. There lay the guinea pigs and they smelled bad in the cave. Its rhetorical or stylistic devices becoming a matter of invention and deviation rather than inherited convention. There lay my sister and she swelled and ached and throbbed. The several formalisms of the 20th century have attempted to investigate systematically the structures and procedures of this autonomy. There lay the guinea pigs, and they ached all over, and their legs stuck straight up like beetles, and they looked depraved and were blue under their eyes as for months of debauchery. The Russian formalists emphasized such notions as the device and the poetic function of language so as to define as specifically as possible how literary texts differ both from communicative uses of language and from each other. My sister puked calmly and indifferently. It ran slowly out of her slack mouth without her moving a single nerve. Other formalist schools have taken the rhetorical figure as a fundamental unit of study, while others, much of the new criticism for instance, have remained closer to their romantic origins by concentrating on what they call the work's, quote, organic unity. And the cave was warm as teats and full of autumn leaves, and beneath the soil lay the arm of a mannequin. In critical practice, all formalisms must confront the problem of relating the subordinate parts to the whole, the local to the global, the device or figure to the work as a totality of relations. 
You tell me. I don't know. You tell me. Why is it the way that it is? Because it is what it is. But it could be otherwise. Why is it the way it is now? It's everything. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, do you have any thoughts on why it is that way? Yeah, why is it that way? What, what way? It, you know, the thing. It just be um, like that sometimes. It just be like that sometimes. It just be like that, you know? I don't know. Why is it that way? That's a good question. When it could be something else. It could be but could it be something it else? Does it have to be like this? It doesn't have to. It doesn't? Well, how could it be otherwise? Through changing actions and changing behavior. And how do you do that? Just do something different than what you're doing. Community. That, that. <laughs> Thank you for your thoughts. There lay the guinea pigs and ached and were made of dough. Self-organization from noise can be taken to form the basis of such a formalism. One that uses concepts first articulated in the sciences of complexity. I'm gonna read that last sentence again. Self-organization from noise can be taken to form the basis of such formalism. One that uses concepts first articulated in the sciences of complexity. There lay the guinea pigs beside the knives that would slice them up like loaves. Insofar as literary texts are both communicative and ambiguous, they are noisy channels. And my sister, with lips of blueberries, soil, and mush. A rhetorical figure, a minimal unit by which literary language differs from a hypothetical language of pure communication, can be characterized as a departure from expectations and thus a reduction of informational redundancy. In the distance, the siren bleated inhumanly. It makes communication less reliable, but increases the informational variety of the system in which the communication takes place. That is where the guinea pigs lay and waited with blood around their mouths and contorted bodies. Now, if all rhetorical figures could be decoded unambiguously by logical or grammatical means, then any uncertainty in which they plunge the reader would be only temporary, and they would be entirely a matter of information, not noise. But deconstructive criticism has repeatedly shown that rhetoric is not, in general, re uh, reducible to grammar. I'll say that again. And this is especially, like, I mean, they're not saying it here, but, I mean, if we're talking about language that includes sound, you know, that's a whole different level of meaning as well. I mean, spoken language includes includes sonic meaning, too, which which further problematizes these things. But, but despite that, I'm going to go back to the text here and read this last sentence again. They waited. And I was tired in my whole stomach from meat dough and guinea pig loaf, and I knew that they would take revenge on me. For demand, Derrida, and other theorists of textual rhetoric, figures, that's rhetorical figures, are not simply ornamental or persuasive, but pose fundamental problems of decidability, prevent, uh, preventing texts from being fully decoded by unambiguous grammar-like procedures. I think I skipped ahead. A poem by Paul Eluard from the compilation Love Poetry. 
If all rhetorical figures could be decoded unambiguously by logic or grammatical means, then any uncertainty in which they plunge the reader would be only temporary, and they would be entirely a matter of information, not noise. But deconstructive criticism has repeatedly shown that rhetoric is not, in general, reducible to grammar. Texts are thus communicatively imperfect, and this is what information theorists mean when they say a channel is noisy. Aloud. Agile love arose in such brilliant bursts that the mind in its loft was afraid to admit everything. For demand, Derrida and other theorists of textual rhetoric, figures are not simply ornamental or persuasive, but pose fundamental problems of decidability, preventing texts from being fully decoded by unambiguous grammar-like procedures. Aloud, all the ravens of the blood covered the memory of other births, then astonished in light, the future exhausted with kisses. You have to... Why is it that way? Exactly, why is it that way? I, I, I love I... <laughs> Tell me later. <laughs> Literary texts inevitably contain elements that are not immediately decodable and that therefore function for their readers as what information theory would call noise. Impossible injustice. A single being is in the world. Love chooses love without changing its face. With this in mind, we are in a position to extend a crucial conjecture advanced by Jury Lottman in the structure of the artistic text, and argue that noise both within and outside the text can lead to the emergence of new levels of meaning, neither predictable from linguistic and genre conventions, nor subject to authorial mastery. Hello, James. This is that poem from Stephen's book. Here is what Lottman, one of the most important contributors to an information-theoretic approach to literature, has to say about organization from noise, quote, Art, and here it manifests its structural kinship to life, is capable of transforming noise into information. It complicates its own structure, owing to its correlation with its environment. In all other systems, the clash with the environment can only lead to the fade-out of information. In other words, the extraterrestrial, social media, planetoid, and internet cloud fracture, which we currently inhabit and explore, is airy cold, is Maxdor Apollonian, not fit for any humanoid, and the phone scroll eternal and the manifold flickering lights may all be leading us to a kind of even less than realism, draining out countless hibernated existence possibilities. So let's all be careful here. I'm going to read that again. Quote, Art, and here it manifests its structural kinship to life, is capable of transforming noise into information. It complicates its own structure, owing to its correlations with its environment. In all other systems, the clash with the environment can only lead to fade out of information. End quote. 
In other words, the extraterrestrial social media planetoid and internet cloud fracture, which we currently inhabit and explore, is airy cold, is Maxdor Apollonian, not fit for any humanoid. And the phone scroll eternal and the manifold flickering lights may all be leading us to a kind of even less than realism, draining out countless hibernated existence possibilities. So let's all be careful here. Shall this we? potential stems for Lotman from the organizational nature of works of art itself a particular type of play between redundant order and informative surprise. The artistic text begins as an attempt to go beyond the usual system of language in which the word is a conventional sign. Let's explore this terrain carefully. A case in point, that uncanny landscape of the Instagram model. It was turning my throat all day yesterday all pretty pretty, posing themselves like dolls. Meet boy doll, meet girl doll, both are turning, their very own body into its own flesh shadow. Both are fading them out, lowering the transparency, consciously choosing to remake themselves. To a specifically artistic system, such as that of poetry, in which sounds, rhythms, positional relations between elements will signify in new ways. The poetic text, in other words, demands of its reader that she creates new codes, that she semanticize elements normally unsemanticized. And coming out the other side as an unreal. The local news, she even said that the teens aren't fucking anymore because the society of the spectacle makes a much better lover than any stinking meat sack filled with bean and that weird, weird world out there, outside of our cozy, comfy womb room, is just too frightening for us all. Just too chaotic, just too strange to even bother with anymore. Behold and beware, fake is the number of the beast, hyperreal is the toad on which it hops, all slave kids Productivity programming was merely a reaching out, a longing for some kind of candy-colored kingdom of a god, just another sad mystic's nightmare we're all stuck living in. New levels of constraint produce new kinds of variety in coding. New contexts in which aspects of language that in non-artistic communication would be extraneous to the message become elements that enter into secondary or tertiary signifying systems. Yes, every Silicon Valley punk is a future saint that will soon reach his sainthood, if he hasn't already. Because entrepreneur is just another word for asshole evangelist. No, no, don't like this, don't approve, against this dystopian turd of minimalist whiteness, I call for an armature of the fecal. Whereas in non-artistic communication, there can be extra systemic facts which are simply ignored or discarded because they are not dealt with by the codes being used to interpret the message. In an artistic text, 
they are our only polysystemic facts. Since whatever is extra-systemic at a given level, and thus destructive of regularity or predictability on that level, must be taken as a possible index of another level, another textual system with a new kind of encoding. I call for thousands upon thousands of unrepeatable, blurry, flesh photograph flooding out amongst us, a new, a trendy new, offline-only genre. The multiplication of codes, or rather the creation of new and specific codes, within a given genre, and a given text, is the essence of artistic communication and the emergence of meaning in artistic texts. Quote, what is extrasystemic in life is represented as polysystemic in art, end quote. For the kids, some will call it death wave, some will call it kidney punk. Its practitioners will soon develop a pearl inside of every bus stop, a pearl inside of every dead squirrel. It will be the intolerable interval caught molting, spotted by a Swedish naturalist and quickly classified, seen by him to shed the fifth skin, becoming transcendent viscerality, a strange thing which procreates like tar, which spreads itself out like thin conceptual mycelium. What appears to be a perturbation in a given system turns out to be the intersection of a new system with the first and becoming aware of such a relation. The reader, in effect, creates a new context in which the previously disruptive offense or variety is reread. Like bulbous acne drifting across the puckered face of Nietzsche's laughing dwarf. The principle of constructing a pattern out of what interrupts patterns is inherent in artistic communication. I'm gonna say that again. The principle of constructing a pattern out of what interrupts patterns is inherent in artistic communication. Let's do it then. Let's play it. Let's run a new program across its back. Let's begin a dirty, dirty realness exchange. Start a mythic setting out. Let's Recode that ancient software, and with our firm trickster eye, ever pointing towards the body central formation, the dawn of the seven numinous and unique surrealist terrorist cells, all built upon a substrate of their own egregoric anatomy. Because any revolutionary worth a damn, any revolutionary worth his sea salt, must be fully fleshed, must never ever be put on ice or exchanged for neon lard in the glowing angelic marketplace. Yes, today I call for a trade, the counterfeit image exchange for a bloody, smelly, spongy turd. We desire a reconnection with our shit, but this new shit, it won't be the same old familiar shit that we all thought we knew. No, no, because some kind of unexpected asbestos metamorphosis shall descend upon it. This new shit shall be rainbow-colored, sentient, shall be covered in moth wing. This new shit will outburst in clover, 
it may even feel love. And uh, I think I'm gonna leave it there for right now. I'll, I'll read more later, probably. That's all for now.